Let's turn in our Bibles this morning, if you would, to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 this morning. You'll want to make sure you have your Bible open so that you can follow along with the text this morning. We're going to take a little longer text than we have been. And actually, with the Lord's help this morning, we're going to finish up the book of Colossians all in one message. Hopefully. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. I was looking at this section and thinking about how to split it up. And honestly, it really flows together as a single thought, I believe. And in many of the epistles, we'll find a section like this towards the end of that letter. In this case, a letter to the church at Colossae. And the apostle is making some personal remarks, giving some personal greetings to some folks, and uh, letting them know about his desire towards them. And sometimes we would be tempted to think, well, this is not an important section, but actually it's very important and informative and really helpful. And this morning I'd like to speak to you from these verses about the subject of gospel companions. Because when we think of the Apostle Paul, sometimes we think about this great man of God who did everything by himself for the glory of God. And the truth is that the Apostle Paul worked alongside many faithful fellow laborers, fellow workers, he calls them here in this section. And we find that Paul was constantly surrounded by other believers who were laboring with him and whose efforts he constantly acknowledged. Remember the theme of Colossians is stand sure in Christ. Paul is admonishing the believers at the church at Colossae to stand sure in the things that they believed, especially the doctrine concerning Christ. And now there's a reminder here in the last few verses of chapter 4 that when we're standing sure in Christ... Praise God, we are not standing alone. You and I have gospel companions, and these relationships are significant. I want to remind you this morning that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Praise God for that. We are not left alone. The Apostle Paul addresses those who are standing with him, and we'll read the text, and then we'll draw some lessons, some principles from this text about the companions that we have in the gospel. Look with me in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. The word of God says, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him, and Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epiphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. 
For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Amen. Where would we be if we were, in fact, a lone ranger? No one else standing for the Lord but you or me. And yet, in reality, God has placed us in a community of believers that the Bible calls a New Testament church. We can be thankful that we can look around the room this morning at the assembly and see a number of others who are standing in the ways of the Lord. Beyond that, we can look beyond our own church and realize that there are others in this country and around this world who are laboring faithfully for the cause of Christ, and we can be thankful today that we have companions in the gospel. But the question that is before us today in regards to this passage is, how should we behave towards these companions in the gospel? Towards others who are of like faith and practice, how should we behave towards them? What is our responsibility towards them? From this passage, these verses which I just read to you, I want to share with you four thoughts about our responsibility towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and how we should treat one another. First of all, we see in this passage the deep regard that Paul has for those who are his companions in the gospel of Christ. And with that, let me say this morning that you and I should regard our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should have regard for them. Now, the regard that Paul had for these believers is seen, first of all, in his love for them. And we ought to regard one another with love. We ought to look at others who are a part of the same spiritual family, who are children of God, and we ought to have affection towards them. The the title, Beloved, is used three times from verse 7 to verse 18 And Paul used that in regards to brethren that were precious to him. They were loved by him. Now you'll notice that that word, beloved, means to treat another person with esteem and love. It means to look at them as precious or special or significant to you. But what you'll notice in the description uh, from verse 7 through verse 18, a number of believers are mentioned... But there is a great diversity among these brethren. For instance, you'll find that there are brothers who are mentioned who are Gentiles and others who are Hebrews. Onesimus, who is mentioned, is a servant, actually a servant who had run away from his master, who was a member of the church at Colossae. And we hear about that in the book of Philemon. Aristarchus is described as a prisoner with Paul. 
Did you notice Marcus, who is mentioned there, the sister's son to Barnabas? Yes, that's the very same John Mark who caused a division between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas early in Paul's ministry because of his failure. And Barnabas wanted to give him another chance. And Paul said, he's finished, he's done. I'm not going to give him another chance. And they separated in their ministry. Now, late in Paul's ministry, he says, Marcus is with me and he's faithful. We see the diversity of these brothers. By the way, Marcus was beloved of Paul despite the fact that he had failed in the past. He had been restored to fellowship. Demas is mentioned next to Luke, the beloved physician. And of course, we know that later Demas would walk away choosing the world over the things of God. So we see all of these individuals who are mentioned here. There's a lot of diversity between them, but one thing that they have in common is that Paul loves each and every one of them. He regards them with respect and with love because he sees them as his brothers, members of the same family, under the same authority of the same father. This morning, we can rejoice when we, meet, when we meet another person who is a believer. We can rejoice because we have the same Father. We have the same faith. We have the same Savior. And because of that, we can rejoice together. It's, a, it's a remarkable how God can bond our hearts together with affection with someone that we've hardly met or hardly know when we realize that they also are a true believer in Jesus Christ. And it draws us together. We should regard our brothers. Now, if this is true of those who are distant, this should also be true of those who are near. And we should love one another with a fervent love. We ought to care deeply for the needs that one another have. We should regard our brothers, not only with love, but with honor. And here in these verses, it's clear that the Apostle Paul is honoring each of the individuals that he is mentioning. What an honor it would be to be mentioned in this letter, which is arriving in Colossae. Even more so, what an honor to be named in this epistle, which would be preserved as scripture for us to read today. It's as if not only the the Apostle Paul, but the Holy Spirit himself is saying, here are some individuals that are worthy of mention because of their faithfulness to the Lord. The Apostle Paul looked at these individuals who were laboring. He calls them his fellow workers in verse 11. And the Apostle Paul is regarding their service for the Lord. He mentions frequently their faithfulness, their their desire to serve others and the Lord, and their desire to serve Him. And we find that in this passage, there is really no sense of position that is indicated. There's no idea of, well, these are a little lower or less significant laborers in the kingdom of God. Instead, we find that Paul values the contribution of these brothers. And yes, the Holy Spirit also values their contributions. Their place is important and their work is no less significant than that of the Apostle Paul. Now, this is important for us because sometimes in the kingdom of God and in the assembly... We start to rank people and we think, well, that person is really important and that person is less important and that person, well, maybe they're of medium importance, but in God's economy, every member of a New Testament church is significant and important. Every person who is fulfilling their responsibility 
in the New Testament church is important to God and ought to be important to us. We ought to regard the service of those who are serving the Lord with great honor. We should honor one another for the work that is given to the Lord. Sometimes it seems like the work of another is a little less important, but every member of a church has a place and fulfills a function. If you're here this morning and you feel as if you're not that significant as a member of this church, let me assure you that if you are doing God's will for your life, you are walking in obedience to Him, your place is significant. You are important. And we ought to honor one another in that way. We should regard our brothers with love. We should regard our brothers with honor. Sadly, this is not always the case. Sadly, we don't always treat one another with love and with respect. But that's how God has designed us to behave towards one another. In regards to our gospel companion, companions, let us regard one another. But second of all, we find in this passage that we should also work together with our brothers. We should labor together. And I want to draw your attention to verse 11. I've mentioned to it to you a couple of times. You'll notice here he mentions a fellow named Jesus, which is called Justice. And I'll just make a, a, a quick comment about that. The name Jesus, which, which means Jehovah is the Savior, it, it was a very common name. Uh, in, in the Hebrew world, as they spoke about the salvation of Jehovah and, and the fact that they were looking forward to his promise. Of course, when we hear the name Jesus, we identify that as Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, the one who is the Son of God who died in our place. But this name Jesus was frequently used, was often given to little boys when they were born. And here's a man who is a disciple of Jesus Christ, who is called Jesus and evidently, they changed his name a little bit. I don't know about you, but if my given name was Jesus, I would feel uncomfortable going by that. And so uh, they called him Justice, but evidently, he was a faithful servant of the Lord. And Paul mentions him together with Marcus, the one who is the nephew of Barnabas. And he says this about them in verse 11, "...these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God." which have been a comfort unto me. Here is Paul in prison, and he mentions these men, and he says, these men are my fellow workers. In other places, he uses the title fellow laborers. Now, what's interesting about these two men is that both of them are indicated as being Hebrews. They are of the circumcision. And by this time, Paul is in prison because of Jewish people who have imprisoned him, who have persecuted him, And yet the Apostle Paul sees these men who are Hebrews as fellow workers, as fellow laborers together with him. These men specifically had been a comfort to him. And I believe the reason they were a comfort to him wasn't because they sat next to him and rubbed his back, but because they were willing to work with him. And Paul was comforted to know that there were other people who were putting their shoulder to the wheel, who were going on with the work, who were going forward in the ways of God. Now think about this idea of being fellow workers and understand that in the kingdom of God, if anything is to be accomplished, it requires us to work together. 
It requires us to work together in unison. There's a beautiful description of what, it, what is happening in a New Testament church when God describes a New Testament church as a body. And I don't know if you think much about it. Most of the time we take this for granted. But something as simple as walking requires the cooperation of every part of your body. Your arms are working together with your legs. Your brain, your eyes, your joints and your hips and your knees and your ankles. All of these things are cooperating together. Even your inner ear, which doesn't seem to have much of anything to do with walking, has everything to do with your balance. And so all of these parts of the body are working together to do something that we do every day. And oftentimes throughout the day, we put one foot in front of the other and we don't think much about it. But it requires great cooperation of our body. And to prove my point, if you've ever been injured and had to relearn how to walk, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, in like manner, God's desire is for a church, a New Testament assembly, to be a body where the members are working together, where we are laboring together in the cause of Christ, in the, in the kingdom of God. And Paul said this about these men, they are fellow workers with me. Think of what happens when people work together. I saw a picture a few days ago that was circulating around, and there was a I don't know how many there were. It looked like a couple hundred Amish men who were around the perimeter of a barn. And they all had a hold of that barn and they had picked it up and they were moving it from one location to the other. And I thought, now that's remarkable. I was also thinking, I hope none of them trip because that would be catastrophic. So somehow they had been able to take their strength and they had put their strength together in unison, had picked up that building and they were moving it, I would presume, not a long distance, but they were moving it from one place to another. And it reminded me of how much can be accomplished when you have many people putting their hands to the work. Whenever we have a fellowship or a function here in the auditorium, it's amazing to me how quickly the auditorium can be transformed from an auditorium to a banquet hall and later from a banquet hall back to an auditorium and everybody pitching in and working and doing their part. And it's a reminder to us that if anything is going to be accomplished in the kingdom of God, it's going to require us working together. God has not called any of us to be a one-man show. He's not called any of us, deputized us, to labor alone. He wants us. He, he is willed for us to work together. But this requires some cooperation, doesn't it? This requires some humility to recognize that we cannot contribute personally everything that needs to be contributed. That there are others who must make a contribution. That there, there are others who have wisdom and others who have abilities and others who have resources that are needed for the work of the kingdom of God. We must be willing to allow others to serve and not to just take all of that for ourselves. We need to learn to work together with our brothers. This kind of working requires us putting ourselves aside. And putting God's agenda first. Pursuing after the plan of God. 
so that we can, in fact, experience what it is to work together in the kingdom of God. It's amazing to me how it works when someone gets saved. And so often, when someone gets saved, we want to know, well, who shared the gospel with you? Who was instrumental in you coming to Christ? And while it may be true that one person uh, was uh, the initial contact, time after time after time, when I hear people's testimonies, I realize that there are many people involved in them understanding the gospel and coming to a place of repentance. Don't think of yourself as, well, you know, I'm the only hope that anybody ever has. Actually, God has many people who are laborers in his harvest. Now, we all ought to take seriously the task that is before us. We ought not to set aside our responsibilities, but we should all put our shoulder to the wheel and get busy working together with our brothers. That's what Paul describes here in these last verses of Colossians. Third of all, in regards to our gospel companions, not only should we regard our brothers, work together with our brothers, but third of all, we need to encourage our brothers. And you'll find here that there are a couple of specific instances of Paul giving encouragement and Paul asking for encouragement. You know that that's a a two-way street. Not only do we need to give encouragement, but we also need to receive encouragement. We not only need to minister to others, but we need to be ministered to ourselves. Sometimes we're better at offering ministry to others and turning away any ministry that anyone wants to offer to us. And that's not a great balance. Sometimes we can end up on the other side and say, minister to me, encourage me, do things for me, but we're not looking for opportunities to encourage others. Notice these examples, if you would. They're towards the end of the chapter. In verse 16, one example of this, he says to the church at Colossae, make sure that when this epistle comes, that you... Uh, that you cause it to be read also in the church that is in Laodicea. Now, if you were to take your Bible atlas and, and check, you would find that the town of Colossae and the town of Laodicea are kind of close together. They're not very far off from each other. And actually, there's another place uh, called Hierapolis, which is mentioned in verse number 13, which is also very close by, and there was a church there as well. And so Paul says this to them, I want you to make sure that you take this letter that I've written to you and that you share it with the brothers and sisters that are in the church in Laodicea. And then make sure that you get the letter that was written to the church at Laodicea and read that to the church at Colossae because they need that as well. Which incidentally, we don't have that letter. That's not preserved for us as scripture. But the letter to the church at Colossae is. And you say, well, what does this have to do with encouragement? This. We can encourage our brothers by sharing what God is teaching us. When we share with others what God is doing in our life and how he is challenging our faith, how he is growing us and making us into the image of Christ, the things that we're learning in the scriptures and and how God is molding us and shaping us, how he's challenging us, that is a tremendous encouragement when brothers and sisters hear God is real in your life. When you stand and say, this is what God is doing for me. This is a prayer that I was praying and this is how God answered it. This is, a, this is a, something that I needed wisdom for and God answered and he gave me his word and he showed me what I needed to do in that situation. That is a tremendous encouragement 
to other brothers and sisters who say, praise God, he's real in that person's life. And it spurs others on to seek after God. So we can encourage our brothers by sharing what God is teaching us. But we can also encourage our brothers. Notice in verse 17, there's a man mentioned. His name is Archippus. And Archippus, if we went over to the book of Philemon, we would find that he's most likely the son of Philemon. And in this case, in verse 17, the Apostle Paul is encouraging him to take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. So we can encourage our brothers by sharing what God is teaching us, but we can also encourage our brothers in this way by challenging one another to fulfill God's calling and God's will for our lives. Paul writes to Archippus, who evidently was a young man, and evidently it was clear that he had been called into the ministry. I personally think that it is probable that Archippus at this time is fulfilling the responsibilities of a pastor in the church at Colossae because Epaphras, who seems to be one of the pastors of the church, is actually with Paul where he is in prison. And so here Paul writes and he says, Archippus, you're a young man. You're just starting out in the ministry. Take heed, pay attention to fulfill that ministry. Make sure that you do the thing that God has called you to do. There's a place for us, especially as we get older in the Lord and we get farther down the road, we can look back and we can see some of the younger ones who are coming up and there is a great responsibility upon us to challenge and to exhort and to encourage them to serve the Lord and to seek after Him. It's unfortunate that in many churches, there seems to be a friction between the older generation and the younger generation. That is not God's will. God wants the older generation to encourage the younger generation. And oh, what an encouragement is to the hearts of the older generation when they see the younger generation seeking after the Lord and putting Him first. But you know, we can encourage one another. Sometimes we're all caught up in... This is my purpose. This is my plan. This is God's will for my life. This is what I'm doing. But we ought to pay attention to what God is doing in other people's lives and encourage them and strengthen their hands to the work. We can encourage one another in the work of God because where would we be if no one else was laboring for the Lord? We should encourage our brethren to follow the will of the Lord. But third of all, in verse 18... Paul indicated that he needed some encouragement. He speaks about the salutation that he was writing. Uh, Most people believe that was his signature, and perhaps that was because of an eye impediment that it seems like Paul may have suffered. He had evidently an uh, an amanuensis or a, a scribe who would record the words that he wanted written. In this case, it seems to be Tychicus, who's mentioned in this passage as well. And then sometimes it seems like Paul would sign with his own hand so that they would know that he was the one who was writing the letter, that it was from him. So he says it plainly, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. And then he says this, remember my bonds. Now, at this time, the Apostle Paul is in prison. 
He's in prison for the preaching of the gospel. He's in prison because he's taken a stand for Christ. He's there in bonds. He's there imprisoned. And Paul needed the encouragement from these brethren. He needed them to know that he was in a time of sore testing. Paul didn't need their sympathy, but he needed them to know that the burdens were real and significant. I don't think Paul was writing saying, hey, write me a letter and tell me how sorry you are that I'm going through these things. I think when he says, remember my bonds, he has more in mind that they would pray for him, that they would regard him, that they, they would remember him before the Lord. He wants them to know that there is a cost for serving Christ. He's willing to pay that price, but he, know, he needs to know that they are also in the battle with him. He needs to be encouraged that they are standing with him. And you know, it is a significant encouragement to our brothers when we remember the burdens that they're bearing. I know you're bearing burdens. I'm bearing burdens. We tend to get very caught up with the burdens that we are bearing. We want others to have sympathy on us for the burdens that we are bearing. But what God really wants us to do is He wants us to bear one another's burdens. He wants us to show an interest in the, in the pain and the burdens that others are bearing. He wants us to get involved in their life and minister to them. And you'll find, by the way, that as you get involved in that way, encouraging others, at remembering the burdens that they're bearing, God is going to work in your own life and He's going to lift your burdens. Amen. A lot of times I've experienced this. The person that I went to minister to ended up ministering to me. I went hoping to be a blessing, and they were a blessing to me in return. And so Paul says, there's a great need for us to encourage one another. I think one of the great benefits of being a member of a true assembly of the Lord Jesus Christ is that when we walk through deep waters, when we bear burdens, we have some brothers to come alongside to walk with us through that. Now, they can't can't take everything upon themselves... But there's something to be said for brothers who are present when we go through trials. Praise God for that. We can encourage one another with our presence. We can encourage one another with the principles of Scripture and the promises of God in those times of trying. And Paul is saying to these brothers, I need some encouragement. I need some help. I need you to remember that I'm in bonds. So we can... Regard our gospel companions with love and with honor. We can work together with our brothers, our gospel companions in the kingdom of God. We do need to encourage our brothers, and we should look for every opportunity that we have to encourage those who are around us. But finally, I want to go back to verse 12, and I think one of the most significant ministries that we can have to our gospel companions is found here in verse 12. And it's, these words are spoken in regards to Epiphras, who we've suggested seems to have been the pastor or one of the pastors at the church at Colossae. We know that evidently he had come to Paul where he was, and he was even at the time of the writing of this epistle, he was ministering to Paul's needs. And evidently he did that representing the church at Colossae. They had sent him for this purpose, and he had come to minister to Paul. 
Now, we know that while he was there, he had actually gotten pretty sick, and it was such that it caused the apostle to despair of whether he was even going to live, but evidently he had recovered. And what we find about Epiphras is that even though he was at this point removed by hundreds of miles from the church at Colossae, his heart was still there with them. And it says in verse 12, he's one of you, he's a servant of Christ, he saluteth you, he's saying hello, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Now, I want you to see his practice of prayer, and it's described eloquently for us here in verse 12. He was always laboring fervently in prayers. The word always means he did this frequently. Evidently, Epiphras was a man who was known for his prayer. He was a man who was known to be on his knees, and not just on his knees praying about anything but laboring on his knees in prayer for the church at Colossae. Laboring tells us that prayer is not some kind of a mindless exercise. It's not some kind of a thing where we check our mind out and mindlessly repeat phrases that come to our come to us, you know, or just over and over say the same things, vain repetitions. No laboring. That means that he worked hard in prayer. He was diligent in his prayer. Prayer is difficult. Prayer is spiritual warfare. And Epiphras was a man who was always laboring fervently. And the word fervently means he was passionate in his prayers. He was not praying, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. That's not what he was praying. He was praying fervently. He was pouring his heart out to the God of heaven. He was finding himself prostrated before the throne of God, and he was bringing requests which were burdens upon his heart, and these requests are mostly focused on the congregation of believers at Colossae. Now you say, why would he be praying so fervently for them? Why would he be laboring so fervently for them? Well, think about for a moment the reason that the Apostle Paul was writing this letter in the first place, which was that evidently there were some false teachers who had come into the church. There was some false doctrine that was being sowed in the minds and the hearts of the people. And as a shepherd, Epiphras is concerned that some of the people who are the part of the flock of God there at Colossae would be swayed by this false teaching. And certainly he could confront that error, but he's far away. And so what can he do? He can pray. He can get on his knees before God and he can labor fervently for these believers. Now notice the specifics of his prayer. The practice of his prayer is described for us. But what was he specifically praying for, for these believers? Well, he was praying that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. There's a lot of truth right there. And, by the way, this is a great way for you to pray for fellow believers. Sometimes you say, how can I be more specific in my prayer life? I I need to know some specific things to pray for. I know maybe I'll get on Facebook and scroll through their feed and see if there's anything specific there. Well, you don't have to do that. 
you, you can pray really specifically for another believer. There's a lot of scriptural ways that we can pray. This is one of them. We can pray for one another that we would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. You know, we ought to pray for one another that we would perform the will of God. That we would stand in the will of God. That word stand means to stay, not to be moved. It means to be steadfast and faithful. It's the idea of continuing on. It's, it's not the idea, you know, when we think of the word stand, we think, well, stand in one place. And it does have that, that, that idea, but stand in one place as you're moving forward in the will of God. That's the idea. Stand perfect and complete. Perfect meaning that you are, that you are full that you are mature, that you have everything that God wants you to have. Complete, meaning you are complete in Christ. You have everything that God wants you to have. And what is the purpose of being perfect and complete? Is it to say, look at me, I'm perfect and complete? No, it's so that you can stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So that you can do what God wants you to do. And Epiphras evidently had developed a pattern of praying fervently for these believers that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. What a great way to pray. And what a great way to regard those that we serve in the gospel with. There's perhaps no greater ministry that you could perform for a brother or sister in Christ than the ministry of intercessory prayer. Learning to pray scriptural prayers learning to pray according to the will of God, learning to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ that they would continue on in the will and the ways of God. Epiphras was so burdened for his brothers and sisters in Colossae that it brought him to prayer. Prayer is not the least that we can do. Prayer is often the most that we can do. Prayer is a tremendous privilege. Prayer is a tremendous ministry that we can be involved in. And Epiphras had a great zeal for these believers. That means he was fervent towards them. He loved them. And his zeal is what drew him to pray for them. Now, I want you to think together with me about your gospel companions. Those that you know and love. People who are here in this church, in the assembly. They're, maybe they're here right now, today, in the same room with you, and God's bringing them to your mind. Think about some of the missionaries that we support. They're from other churches, many of them, but we are helping them by supporting them financially and in prayers, and we love them, and we care about their ministry, and we're concerned, uh, we're thankful as well that they are laboring with us in the gospel others that you may know of that God brings to your mind and you say, how should I behave towards these gospel companions? Well, we've seen some great ways to behave towards these gospel companions right here in this passage. And may God help us to regard one another. May He help us to regard one another with love and with honor. May He help us to work together in the work of God. May He help us to encourage one another. And may He help us to pray for one another, to uphold one another's hands in the work of the Lord. If we're going to stand sure and strong in the doctrine of Christ, we need one another. 
Let us strengthen one another's hands to the work that God has called us to. 